1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. All right. You guys ready for God's word this morning? No, you're not. <clears throat> Peter says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, even as we open up the written word to receive, we ask that our hearts would be open up to the living word. Your son, Jesus Christ, as the Apostle John referred to you as the logos, the living word. We pray that as we read your written word, we would be exposed and allured and attracted to the living word. We invite you here, Lord, to do whatever it is that you wish to do, to rearrange the furniture of our hearts and souls and our minds in order to make space for you to occupy. And Lord, sometimes that process is painful. Sometimes the things you want to move around are things that we actually like. And I just pray that today you would give us a compelling vision for our destiny in Christ and the purposes and the plans that you have for us that are always good. I pray that your presence would be here, palpable and tangible, to both encourage us, but also to challenge us. And I pray that we would forever be uncomfortable in our status quo, that would be continually moving forward by the power and the guidance and the vision of the Holy Spirit to newer things and to deeper things and to better things. We believe that Everything about you and everything that you say is better. And so we want to take seriously your last command on earth to go into the world, starting here, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We sit here, Lord, joyfully and gladly at your feet, wanting to learn and observe everything that you command us. You just take this little morsel today and ask that, Holy Spirit, you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> there was an uh, Air Force colonel by the name of George Hall who was a POW locked in a deep, dark dungeon Uh, for about seven years. Now, while most people would lose their minds in a situation like that, George Hall was able to continually go to his happy place, so to speak, by daily mentally playing games of golf. His, uh, as this writer, uh, as a writer of his biography states, his visualizations in in imprisonment were so extremely in-depth, it included everything in his imagination from hitting the ball off the tee, raking the sand traps, and feeling the wind, and of course tapping the ball into the hole. In this dungeon, in this prison, 
for seven years every day, he would practice in his mind, imaginary, uh, uh, in his imagination, playing golf. Regardless of being weak and 100 pounds lighter than before his capture, one of the first things Hall wanted to do after his release was play an actual game of golf. <clears throat> so he was invited to the Greater New Orleans Open where, the, uh, where he astoundingly shot a 76. When a member of the press suggested his performance was just a case of beginner's luck, he responded, Luck? I never putted a green in the last, I never three putted a green in the last five years. Despite his physical deterioration and not stepping on a course in over seven years, his body had developed muscle memory based simply on his strong imagination. I bring this story up because what Peter is about to cause us to plunge into is very similar. I don't want to call it mind over matter because it's far more different than that, but it is something that starts with the mind. And what Peter launches into, and I'm just going to take this verse by verse for about three verses. But in that first verse where everything starts, Peter speaks about the Christian state of mind. The thing that we need to understand as believers in exile. He's writing to a bunch of believers in exile all over Asia Minor. And it's also for us believers, Christians in exile in Santa Barbara, joyfully and lovely as it is, we are living in an environment and in a culture that has different values than us. And the theme of Peter on how to suffer rightly and well is this combination, as we've been talking about, of being sent intentionally to where we live, Santa Barbara, Goleta, Isla Vista, and abroad, being sent intentionally to where we live. We belong here. We have ownership over here, and yet, simultaneously, we are set apart from its value systems. We live a distinctly different life, and that that little two-part combo is the method that Peter lays down for Christian exiles, and right here, he goes, he's been speaking this whole time uh, for the portion of 1 Peter chapter 1 that we've gotten to up until verse 12 about being born again and how that changes your affections and it changes your desires and it changes all of these things. Now, he begins to speak about how that affects the Christian state of mind. And when he speaks about your state of mind, he's, he's going to refer to about three different things that we're going to go through one by one. One, what are the things that you put your trust in? <clears throat> Two, what do you spend the most time thinking about? And three, the degree to which circumstances are able to affect the last two. The circumstances around you, how much they affect your trust, how much they affect how much you think about and what you think about. These are the three things that he's talking about. Let me just read that verse over again so we have it fresh in our minds. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything in this passage that we're studying today has to do with this crux in the first verse. It is hinging and depending on that last phrase, to set your hope. This is the Christian life. This is the Christian motivation. To set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Peter speaks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's speaking about the day that he will come again to retrieve his bride. 
when he comes again in all of his glory, his promised appearing. He came the first time to die on the cross and rise from the dead, and he fulfilled that promise, and he left us with a second promise that he would send us his Holy Spirit in the meantime, and a third promise that he would come again. And Peter is saying, hey, he already committed to the first two promises, now I want you to set your hope on the third one, because it ain't over yet. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you have this hope that drives you. You should have a hope that drives you. To full, uh, uh, this hope that his other promise is true, and we are to set our hope on that truth. Now, when Peter speaks about hope, specifically uh, Peter, he often uses it uh, synonymously with faith, which is another way of describing trust. Set your trust fully on the grace that will be, reve- uh, will be brought to you when Christ appears. Your trust and your faith is fully in Christ and his promises. And that type of faith, that type of hope, that unseen hope that you just know is going to happen, has the ability to drive people to do things that they ordinarily would not have the willpower to do. When you're in circumstances that are difficult and when you don't see the end and there's no hope, you lose it. You get desperate and you fall apart. But if you just have an inkling of hope, hope is so powerful for the human race, you're able to do things vastly, far beyond what you would normally be able to do on your own willpower. Hope, in this case, is a charge to live like Jesus is coming back. Changes the direction of your life. So if I could summarize just that, what Peter seems to be saying is, hey, as Christians, We must, if we've been born again to a a living hope, we must reorient our trust to be in Jesus Christ. Your trust may be in some of the flimsy things that society offers, uh, security and power and all of those things, uh, money, all of those things that come along, relationships, but Peter is saying your trust must be locked in and hinged to the person of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I trust in Christ, and that's kind of an easy thing to say, but how do you know if you actually are trusting in Jesus? It seems that you can tell what your trust is in by looking at what you think about most throughout the day. And this is what the next part of the verse is about. When he goes on to say, uh, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he then says, preparing your minds for action. And then later he'll say, being sober-minded. And this right now looks like there's three separate commands. But in the original language, there's only one finite verb, and it's set your hope on Christ. That means that is the root of the sentence. That is the, the bulwark. That is the hinge right there. It means that is the primary command. We are to set our hope on Christ. So those next two phrases are actually a part of what it means to set your hope on Christ. Peter could say it this way. You need to set your hope on Jesus and his promises. But how do you do that? Well, one of the ways that you start is by, uh, uh, by being sober-minded and preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. I love the original language that he uses. In, uh, in, uh, he literally says to gird up the loins of your mind. The English version translates it, prepare your minds for action, but Peter's literally saying, gird up the loins of your mind. 
Uh, one scholar writes that this image is drawn from the ancient and still modern for some in the Middle East form of dress in which a man's long outer skirt kind of draped down to his ankles, preventing him from running or being agile or quick with motions or doing any type of strenuous work. And so when the moment arose where they needed to do some strenuous work, they would have to uh, tuck their shirt into their belt, and this was called girding himself with, up for action, girding yourself to do some hard work. Now, Peter takes that metaphor, and he turns it into something that has to do with your mind. He literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, get ready to do some hard mental activity. Get ready to uh, prepare yourself for deep concentration and clear thinking. This is a state of mind and it's important. And this leads us to ask ourselves the question right now before we get even deeper than we're going, in what ways is your thought life preventing you from being agile in God's mission in Santa Barbara? It could be anything from hurry or worry It could be anxiety, it could be anger, it could be just mere busyness and uh, the desire to be uh, productive. Those things could drive you and prevent you from thinking clearly about God's will and mission for your life. What are some of the ways that we are prevented from being agile in that sense? Peter says, hey, get ready to gird the loins of your mind. Get ready to think deeply about what God has in store for you. So when he says, hey, set your hope on Christ, He's then saying the way that you begin to do that is by reorienting your thought life around Christ. Where your thoughts go, your trust becomes influenced. And if you trust in him, you'll begin to fill your mind with his thoughts. Then he ends on this last thing, and this is kind of the ending ending of this whole section here. He says, being sober-minded. So, If you want to set your hope on Christ, you must prepare your minds for action. And in order to prepare your minds for action, the key is to walk in sober-mindedness. Let me talk about this for a moment. This is probably one of the more important, tangible parts of this this verse. The word nephantes in the Greek that Peter uses means to keep sober in spirit. He's using another metaphor. He's using a metaphor about drunkenness. Now, this really, to be sober-minded is really tantamount to, to saying to people, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to what God is doing. Be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of God's movement and activity in and around you and also the devil's activity around you. <clears throat> and there's this present tense to the verb suggesting an ongoing action. We're always to have this state of mind where we are paying attention to our lives and to what God is doing in and around us. But that's not enough. See, this metaphor Peter is using is striking at a particular weakness in humanity. He's using a particular word that speaks about people just getting drunk on wine and, uh, and booze. And of course, this verse would certainly cover drunkenness, but he's using the metaphor to speak about a broad way of speaking in, uh, in which people are inebriated by the things of the world and the cares of the world. <clears throat> drunkenness is a loss, at the, at the base of it, is a loss of control that impairs your ability to think clearly. Peter takes this metaphor that we all understand when we speak about drunkenness and he applies it to everything. 
it certainly would cover drunkenness, but then he also speaks about the ways that the world and our own sinful tendencies rob us of our th- uh, clear thinking. <clears throat> in this verse, Peter is saying, hey, we need to learn to trust in Christ, and in order to trust in Christ, we must fill our minds with the things of Christ, and the first step in doing that is by ridding our lives of anything that keeps us focused on him. This is just another way of saying practice self-control. Self-control and sober-mindedness are very close together. It's the opposite of inebriation. It's the opposite of a loss of control. That's why the uh, New Living Translation, instead of saying being sober-minded, simply says exercise self-control. It's self-control that starts with the mind. Uh, The theological Yoda of our times, uh, Tim Keller, once described self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, as choosing the important over the urgent. That's really all it is. It's being able to think so clearly in the moment that you can choose that which is important over that which is urgent. How many of us understand that although we would love to choose the important things, it's often the urgent things that drive us. <clears throat> now think of this. You, you, know, you may be able to trust God and think rightly when things are going rightly, but what about when things go wrong? What about when your environment becomes threatening to you? What happens when you're afraid? What happens when you lose out on uh, certain benefits or social benefits because of your following Christ? What happens when events go wrong? What happens when you uh, encounter suffering or conflicts? Sometimes those things leave your mind and you begin to choose that which is urgent. You are driven by worry and anxiety and the things that you have to do and need to do instead of the things that are most important to be done. God wants to make you the type of person, this is what Peter is getting at, the type of person whose mind is working in such alignment with his will and his kingdom that you just, by second nature, choose that which is important over that which is urgent every time. Now at this point, this might seem like basic self-help advice, but it's not. Peter is describing the fruit of the Spirit. And he goes on to share how self-control actually has an impact on everything about you, your inner life. He will go on to say, uh, in, uh, later on in chapter 4, verse 7, that it actually affects your closeness with God in prayer. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, listen to the same word, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer life. In chapter 5, verse 8, he will actually describe another encounter. Be sober-minded, there it is. Be watchful for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you see that? Self-control is an incredible, integrated part of your life. It affects your, your closeness to your Lord and your resistance to the devil, And it starts in the mind. It's also an element of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's an element of that fruit. Now, the interesting thing about Paul is when he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. He uses it in the singular, the fruit. In other words, those seven, that, that, that grouping of fruit 
It's all together elements of one fruit. And this is really important because some of us might have the tendency to say, well, you know what? I've got like a few of the fruits, but not all of them. And you know who you are. You're like, yeah, I kind of got the gift uh, or the fruit of faithfulness because uh, I'm pretty like, I'm into my job and I'm a go-getter and I, I get things done and I make sure what needs to be done is done. I'm just not very self-controlled, so I steamroll everybody in my job. Well, you're not describing the fruit of the Spirit. You're just basically saying you are a go-getter that's, that destroys other people's lives in order to get what you want. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. Or you'd be growing in all of them. Or you might say, you know what? I've got self-control. I'm able to resist uh, temptation. Uh, I have a lot of moderation in various parts of my life. But no peace, no joy, no love. Well, it's not really self-control. Because what Paul is saying when he describes the fruit of the Spirit is that they are all a part of that single fruit. So if you're growing in self-control, you'll also be growing in love and peace and patience and so on and so forth. And they are integrated into one another. After all, what is love? But the ability to control your love of self in order to see somebody else's need and meet their need without any guarantee of reciprocation. What is joy? It's being able to be controlled in a, an environment that is not going your way because your trust is in the Lord. What is peace? It is able to control that sense of anxiety by the power of the Holy Spirit because you're no, you know your hope is in Christ. What is, uh, what is kindness? What is, uh, what is kindness but the ability to confront somebody without destroying them, withholding your judgmental and condemning side in order to deliver truth. They're all a part of themselves. So if you're growing in self-control, you're growing in all of them. Now the presence of self-control really just means when you start growing in self-control, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I'm growing. What this means is you are becoming the type of person who is learning to trust God as evidenced by the way that you think or act in the moment. It's a small step in that direction. Now, why is that so important? Well, this is the second point. It's because of the Christian's battle. Peter speaks about the Christian's state of mind. Why you need to have a spirit-filled state of mind is because of the battle that you are going to encounter in this life. Now, I want to be clear. If you are not serious about following Jesus, you may not have any battle. If you are a nominal Christian, if you're just in it because of the name that's attached and for the social benefit that it may get you, you may not encounter any spiritual or relational or societal battle. It's usually the people that are most threatening to the devil that encounter the biggest battles. For those of you that are serious about following Jesus, Peter's saying you need a particular state of mind so that you can encounter a particular battle. The Bible tells us that all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted to different degrees, right? Not as bad here as in Saudi Arabia, but everyone who desires to take Jesus seriously will encounter some form of opposition. Peter wants us to be ready. Now, <clears throat> the Bible describes three different battlefronts. We're going to talk about one, but one is the world. And I don't mean people. People aren't our enemies, but the, the value system of the world is a battle. That's why we're exiles in the world. The second uh, battlefront is the devil. The Bible teaches that there is a demonic fallen angel with other fallen angels, spiritually speaking, that attack uh, and try to oppose the work of God, and he comes after people. And we'll talk about that later in chapter five. The third battle is a little more personal. 
It's you. Look at this line. This next line as Peter describes it. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The battle is in you. Now you may think at this point, you know what, I'm a Christian. I mean, I understand battles and like spiritual battle, but I just give my life to the Lord and like, this is gone, bro. I'm good. I haven't sinned in like seven years. You just sinned, liar. Well, I used to sin back when I was robbing banks and getting drunk and being promiscuous, but now I'm pretty good. You know, I've got a, got a pretty good handle on my life and I have not sinned for a long time. This is exactly the type of thing that the devil would love for you to understand and love for you to be uh, delusioned by. Delusioned by? I think I just made up a, a verb. <clears throat> and here's where it the, uh, a bit of clarity might make sense of the Christian life. It is true that when you get born again, the Bible tells us that the power of sin is broken in your life. But the presence of sin still remains. The power of sin has been broken. You don't need to be ruled by it, but it's still there. And it will take up as much ground as you're willing to allow it. But Peter has some, some short things to say. He doesn't have like a lot of letters Paul, this is where Paul comes in, and he gives us an extensive understanding about this battle. I want to get into some of the things that he says about this battle going on in the Christian. Remember, these are letters to Christians. And often did this using shorthand, uh, short ter- uh, sorry, shorthand terminology called the flesh. You familiar with it, that term, the flesh? Paul always uses it. He's not talking about your knuckles and your skin and your bones, although sin can make its way into those uh, areas, what he's speaking about is uh, uh, your sinful nature, okay? This battle going on in, uh, inside of you. Listen to how he describes this of himself in Romans chapter 7. Now, keep in mind, he's the apostle, man. Like, if he were here today, you guys would be like, okay, Lazo, step down. I want to hear from Paul, you know? Good Christian in the room. But listen to how he describes himself. This is really s- sobering. He says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. There it is. For I have the desire to do what's right. There is that there. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Do you hear this like, battle inside between two things inside the human person in close proximity battling for rule and reign. In other words, he's saying, I have been saved and my affections have been changed and I love the things of God and I didn't used to do that, but now that has changed. But there's still this remaining remnant hostility inside of me that wants to, wants to assert itself and it's my flesh. In Romans chapter 7, verse 23, he'd go on to say more. He would say, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. The very thing Paul, uh, Peter would, uh, was saying, we need to build up our minds because there's a war against it. And Paul goes on to say, it's, it's, there's a, a waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in the flesh. 
In other words, inside of every believer is a battle happening between your newly born again inner person and this leftover remnant of the flesh. Now, there's a battle in the non-believer as well, but for the non-believer, it's just all battle. There's no inward new affections that are driving you to follow God. It's just, it's just sin. And so when you are born again, there's this change inside of you and a battle between two opposing forces. A helpful way of thinking of the flesh, I love how uh, one author, Robert Mulholland Jr. puts it, he describes the flesh, so whenever I think of flesh, I can't help but think of like skin and bones. He calls it the false self. In other words, when you have been born again, you have been renewed in the image of God, been given a new mind and a new heart. That is who you are, truly. That is your true self. That's who you're created to be, and that's what God is intending to uh, complete in you. That flesh, though, is the false self. That's not really you anymore, but it's trying to take over you. It's the sin nature inside of you that is usurping, attempting to usurp all that God wants to do. And the false self is called the false self because it's not really you anymore, but it's a squatter. It will stay as long as you are willing to allow it, and then it will take up as much real estate that you are willing to give it. Uh, to put, uh, put it in the words of Mulholland Jr., he says this, the, the false self is a pervasive and deeply entrenched self-referenced being, a, a, a nature inside of you which is being driven by its own agendas, its own desires, its own purposes. Now, all of that to say that when Peter says here, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, he's simply saying, hey, do not be conformed to the passions, those, uh, those impulses of your false self. Your false self, your flesh wants to rule and it, it wants to be driven by its own impulses. You're not to be conformed to that anymore. In other words, he's not just talking about like what you're passionate about. Whenever Paul and Peter and James speak about passions, they're not like talking about the things that you would normally put like in your, your, your Twitter bio, you know, like, I'm John and I'm passionate about renewable energy, justice, and kale, you know. <laughs> or I'm Obadiah and I'm passionate about the Bible and the Constitution, you know, purity, you know. Whatever it is, like those are good things. God made you to be passionate about good things. That's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the self-seeking, unsanctified longings of fallen humanity. He's talking about the passions of your former self, the sinful nature that desires to rule its own life and to rule your own life. And as you attempt to put your thoughts on Christ, you will find that the false self is right there, ready to insert its own thoughts and passions and desires. And Peter says, hey, you don't have to be conformed to that anymore used to be, you were enslaved to sin, but now you've been given a way out. <clears throat> At this point, we should be asking ourselves, in what ways are we being prevented from trusting in and thinking about Christ today? What's the obstacle for you? Now, I'll bet if you traced it back, if you were to peer deep down inside your, your dark motivations and the, the hidden places that you don't like to open up, you know, you would probably find some hidden passion or desire of the flesh. And they can be really subtle. They can be really tiny things that just creep up. You know, here's some examples. Maybe the bills are stacking up. 
You know, you, you generally live life like believing in Christ for his provision and thanking him and you're generous, but one month the bills pile up and you're living from paycheck to paycheck. You don't know how uh, you're going to make it that particular season and then your mind just spins out of control. You just go into damage control and everything about trusting God for his provision and being loving and generous is out the door. Now you're maybe doing some unethical things. Maybe you're being a little... Uh, temperamental with people. Maybe you're shouting at your friends. Maybe you're lashing out at your spouse or your kids. What's happening? Underlying all of that is a little bit of fear, a passion of the flesh. Fear is your flesh, your false self saying, I don't trust God. I trust myself and myself doesn't have have it together. So I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get myself together. Maybe someone at work got recognized or one of your friends is having a great time in life and you're, you know, you're a little jealous and so whenever you see him, you're like, you, your body language starts to take on a power stance, you know? You're like, and in these little subtle ways, you're just throwing your weight around, just trying to make sure people know you got it together too. You deserve stuff like that. What's happening there? It's pride an element of your false self. It's you saying, deep down inside, I need to be validated, and my validation from God isn't enough, and so I need it from other people, and I'm going to get it myself. It's more control. Maybe someone hurt you really bad, and you're acting out in vindictive ways. Maybe you're so steeped in hurt that it's turning into resentment and bitterness, and you're actually starting to think through ways that you want to get even, <clears throat> thinking how you have been hurt. And maybe that's starting to impact your friendships and your relationships, your own walk with God. What's happening there? Well, it's anger. Now, anger is in itself a sin, but Paul says uh, in Ephesians, do not, uh, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sin, uh, sun, go, sin go down, sun go down on your sin. Sun go down on your anger. That's a, another way of him saying, uh, don't let this turn into unforgiveness. Unforgiveness turns into resentment. Resentment turns into bitterness. And when you get to that point, you're doomed. <clears throat> These things and the list of vices and sins in their subtlety are battling in you. Do not be fooled because you're a Christian. Do not be fooled. There is a battle inside of you. It's there. Whether you've been a Christian for a year or 70 years, the question is, are you going to be open about it before God and others and deal with it head on by the power of the Spirit? Are you going to allow him to invade the space in your heart and to point out some of those things that are acting out inside of you, perhaps that you don't even know? It may be that it's, that stuff is being carried out in your body or in relationships or in tangible ways already, but Peter's saying it starts in the mind. In other words, in all of those examples that we brought up and just about every example that we could bring up, you are not experiencing the self-control of the Holy Spirit. You are rather attempting to take control. You are longing for control, and there's the difference. God wants to save us from being an independent island Santa Barbara here and all abroad, we love to think that our best life is wrapped up in being a law to ourselves. 
of simply being true to our own passions and desires, following our hearts wherever that would lead us, following the things that are, are most true about us, being independent. And the gospel declares that that is the furthest thing from your satisfaction. Your true happiness and joy and satisfaction is by losing your independence and becoming dependent on Jesus Christ. That's all Peter is saying. He's just taking a morsel of that and saying, you used to love being in control of your life. I want to show you a better way. How about you give up control and you give it to Jesus, starting little by little in the mind. Now, you say, well, I see what you're saying. But I went to the Holy Spirit class, you know, on Monday nights and got baptized in the Spirit. I'm good. I don't do that anymore. I used to rob banks and kill people and get in fights and get drunk and be promiscuous. But now I don't. I go to church. I go to classes. I'm in a home group. I do, like, all the good stuff that you keep telling me to do, Chris. Like, I'm rolling. I'm rolling. In spirituality, the 16th century spiritual thinker John of the Cross wrote this book called The Dark Night of the Soul in which he describes something so profound. He's the one, I believe, who came up with what we call the seven deadly sins, you know, pride and avarice and wrath. We think of those things, I think there's a silly movie that came out about that in, in the world, but John of the Cross is actually writing about spirit-filled Christians, And his whole thing in that book is how once you get saved and you turn from like the the, uh, obvious uh, vices of the world, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, for lack of a better example, your passions don't just disappear. They simply take on a smarter veneer. Instead of looking to the obvious things that the world was offering you, they now turn to your spirituality and seek to usurp your life through good things in your life. Here's some examples. I'll start with myself. I preach the Bible every Sunday. It's my pride and joy, and I love it. And I know the good that comes from it, and I know that God tells us to do it, and I know that it is a good thing. And yet I would be lying if I didn't say that on occasions, I hope that when I preach a good, I, I hope I preach a good sermon not to honor God and to be obedient, but that people would be encouraged by me. I'm hoping that I would be validated in what I'm doing. What is that? That is my false self trying to do what it used to do with all the obvious worldly stuff. It's now, it's now taking on a more subtle and intelligent veneer with the good things that God has commanded me to do. It's taking over my spirituality. Perhaps you have kids and you don't want them to throw a tantrum and maybe you like strong arm and will them to be obedient and uh, of course discipline and all, you know, training up children is a biblical command but how many of you when you're doing it are more driven not for the good of your child in that moment but what other people, other parents will think of you. You want people, you want other parents perhaps to think that you have it all together. What is that? That is part of your false self, creeping into something that's otherwise good. You begin reading the Bible, but maybe it's not to be with Jesus, but to stuff your head with knowledge, pride coming into your spirituality. You like raising your hands in church, and obviously this is a a, a biblical expression of worship that is so good. When When we move our bodies, it often impacts the things that are in our hearts, but we can also do it out of sense of spiritual pride. Ah! 
I want people to see that I'm engaged. And yet there's other people uh, in different parts of the room who are not raising their hands and they're racked with guilt and saying, you know, maybe I'm not as spiritual as other people that are on the carpets. That's actually another form of spiritual pride. Someone else will say, oh, I'm going, I'm not going to open up at my home group because then people will see who I really am. And the list goes on and on and on. When we get saved, the battle doesn't stop. It just gets a little more tricky. Old passions run deep. And when you become a, a Christian, the passions don't disappear. The sinful passions don't disappear. They simply resurface under a veneer of spirituality, attempting, as always, to assert God's rule over your life using Christian vernacular. Oh, I'm doing this for the glory of God. Stop it. I tell myself that every day, and every day God points out, I'm so full of myself. Old passions run deep, and the promise of Scripture is, hey, that power has been broken, but it's still present. Paul would say, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I love that. He's saying, you don't, have to, you don't have to let it anymore. But you have to assert yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and say, no longer. You actually have to stop animating and entertaining your sinful nature. Whatever it is that you might be doing to feed those old appetites, you've got to cut it off. And Peter is simply saying the same thing. Don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance anymore. You've been set free from that, but now you must turn the ignition and drive in the right direction. In other words, we must die to our false self. And sometimes dying to our false self is, is, is difficult. Because our false self a lot, of, a lot of it we love. I love my pride, bro. <laughs> I want people to validate me. I want to feel good about myself. I want to get ahead in life. I want to have a lot of stuff. Like the list is endless. And God is calling into question those things. Of course I don't want to relinquish those things that my, my flesh wants. What incentive do I or any of us have to do to go through that type of suffering? Just because God says to do it. Peter's last point, because of the Christian's purpose. It says in that last verse, read with me in your Bibles, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Literally, Peter's saying, be like the holy one who called you. Just think about that line for a second. Talk about purpose. Be like the Holy One who called you. What is the point of Christianity? I ask this because perhaps some of you in this room have been plagued with that question. You've been doing it for a few years, doing the thing. And maybe you're asking yourself, is this all there is to it? Like, read my Bible and go to church once a week? Is that the full capacity of what Christianity is? And maybe you've been doing it for some time and you're, you've been asking that question and been left wanting. Maybe you're even burned out and tired. Going to church. Open my Bible. Go to church. And the feeling that you have of burnt outness and tiredness and longing for more is a right desire. 
Because humanity doesn't just need another religious to-do list. It needs and longs for transformation of the human soul into the kind of life that people were destined for. And the narrative of Scripture through and through is that we were made to become like God, to be with God, to be filled with the life of God, and to be driven by the same passions that drive God. Christianity, listen, answering your question right now, Christianity is nothing less than being restored to a transforming union with your God. It is more than just reading your Bible, going to church, being active in church activities, and being a good Christian. Those things come out of the better thing, but the better and central thing is being restored to a transforming union and relationship with God. The testimony of Scripture is replete with this stuff. You have to read the outlandish things that some of the apostles describe. It's, uh, at first glance, you almost think that they're exaggerating. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3.19. I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Listen to this. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God? I pray, Paul is saying, I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God? That's like me saying, I have this 12-ounce pint glass, and I want to fill it with all the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> First glance, I'm like, Paul, you're so silly. You go on these tangents, and you, you just exaggerate. Surely that can't be literal. But he keeps saying it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says it again. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, transforming union. There it is again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, Paul can't shut up. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind that is already yours in Jesus. He would later say in another letter, you have the mind of Christ. This is an absorption of your identity in the Godhead. This is insanity. John, the apostle who leaned upon the, the chest of his Lord Jesus, perhaps one of Jesus' best friends, would say, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Peter, in other words, there will come a time, and that's that hope. When Jesus appears, we will see him, and what we have been growing into will be culminated in an instant. And yet right now, Paul, we are with unveiled, unveiled face seeing him more and more being transformed into that image until what John says later, we'll see him face to face and bam, it'll be over. So when Peter is saying this verse that we just read, be holy as I am holy, he's actually quoting Leviticus 11.44, restating that old promise. Remember we talked about Leviticus last week? See, Leviticus is awesome. That old promise that God intends to set us apart for his very purpose, to be distinct. We're in Santa Barbara, but we're to be distinct. How to be distinct? Transforming union with God. That'll make you different. 
And then he goes on to say, in case you thought he was kidding, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of your sinful desire. Every single apostle who's ever written something worth writing. And every spiritual writer from the early church, from Paul who was caught up into the third heaven, to Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, Bernard of Clairvaux, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Jonathan Edwards, even to modern day spiritual thinkers, the late Dallas Willard, it's just the lineup from Jesus till now. People have believed that transforming union with God was not only required, but possible. Where in the world did they get this nonsense? I think they got it from Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, he prays in full view and hearing of his disciples, the 12. And he says, Father, I do not ask for these only, the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have also given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's saying, I want my people to experience what I experience in you. You and me, and I in you. I want them to be in us. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you love me. To put it in the words again of Robert Mulholland Jr., Jesus is indicating that the purpose of the Christian life is a life of loving union with God at the depths of our being. That's your purpose. And yet how many of us in this room would say, gosh, I fall so far, fall sh- so far short of that. I love that ideal, but man, I'm just trying to get through small sinful tendencies, my misaligned passions and sinful desires, my little addictions, my outbursts of anger. I can't even think about that glory. Perhaps you're feeling guilty about that, saying, I can barely manage my life day to day. How hard is it to reach up to a, a, a God who seems so high? And my friends, this is where the gospel it becomes the good news that you so need in this moment. Because the gospel is not how high can you reach to attain God, but how low was God willing to descend to reach you. When Jesus died on the cross, he did everything that was needed to destroy and to kill the power of your sinful nature. But there was also this element of God's nature that was being put on display, that God came down and he, invade, he didn't just, from his throne, shout at your false self and say, stop having a false self. Practice self-control. Be a better person. Love more. No, God chooses to invade your false self. He steps into your broken humanity. 
Romans 8, 3 says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son, the very thing that we could not do because of the law just told us to do it, we can't do it because of our sinful nature, he did his own self by sending his own son in the likeness of our false self. He took on our body. He dwelt among us. And he breaks the power of the false self over anyone who is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He doesn't just shout from on high I want you to be a better person. He invades your false self. He identifies it and yet without any sin on his own he begins to change you from the inside out. So you may say, yeah, well now what? This is a big project, man. It's like when my kids, like I tell my, Abby to clean the living room or Brianna tells her, her to clean the living room and all her toys are just, just spread out over the whole world. And she's like, oh, I don't know where to start. And we're just like, well, why don't you start with like that Lego? <laughs> you know? So, oh, okay. Or I'm teaching my son Jude how to ride this scooter and it's, it's fast and crazy and he falls and he, he, you know, he's a little shaky. But then I step up to him and I I tell him, okay, you put your hands on the handle and I'll put my hands over your hands. And so you're scootering and I'm scootering and we're scootering together. Paul says in Philippians, to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. You're not on your own. And the beautiful mercy of the statement by by Peter is that, yeah, this is a big project, man. God is saying, be like me. Oh, okay. But then he he gives us a small step. He says, yeah, I know, big project. But start with self-control in the little things in an abiding relationship with me. Start by practicing choosing little important things over the urgent things as you are abiding in me. Now, careful. This is not just a call to simply do self-control. Self-control must come out of a response to God's abiding love. And you say, well, how do you start? It begins by seeing the, the wickedness in your own heart, Christian. I told a, this story a couple times, most notably of a a uh, year, year and a half, maybe two years ago, and we went through the Sermon on the Mount of my life falling apart through a variety of different means. And <clears throat> like to describe what the Lord did to bring me through that as I studied Scripture. I just need like five extra minutes. Is that okay? You probably wouldn't yell no if you... <laughs> so merciful. I'll try to hurry. But... Uh, A couple of years back, I remember all of these things. It was like a perfect storm in my life that just kind of just rocked me. I didn't have the state of mind that I needed. And there were a lot of different devastating things happening in and around my life, but it all started with one little pebble in my shoe. I was hurt and wronged by somebody, and it devastated me, and I let it simmer. I let it fester inside of me for, for a year. 
And over the course of a year, something so small as like a little hurt and a pain, I was just so shocked to see how it turned into poison. It turned into resentment and bitterness. And truth be told, hatred. It began to destroy my, my, my personal relationship with God. It hindered my prayer life. It began to seep into my relationships. It began to detach my mind from being present with my kids and even my wife. I, I would start to just get angry, not just about that one incident, but anything, any little thing began to, to set me off. I be, started to become a different person, an awful person. And at one point, it got so bad that my wife looked at me in the hallway one day and said, you, you're not the same guy that I married seven years ago. As tears were rolling down her face, she said, I want my husband back. And in that moment, I broke. I was so deluded by my false self that I couldn't see what I was doing to myself, destroying my relationships, destroying my family, destroying my own soul. And that moment was what God used to help me to acknowledge and see how how low I had fallen and to be broken over it. And in that moment, I fell on my face and for months after that begin to open up my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, God, I am a mess right now. I don't even know how to fix myself. I don't even know what, what's in there that needs to be fixed. I pray, just praying the, the, the prayer of David, God, would you examine my heart and see if there's any way, wayward way within me and lead me in the path of everlasting. I don't even know all the poison that is hiding in the crevices of my own sinful, false self. Help me, come in to the false self, just as you did when you came to the cross, continue to come in to my dirtiness. And as I began to do that, I began to learn anew. As he was rearranging furniture and exposing dark places to abide in his love, and his love was what kept me in those hard places. After examining scriptures, and experiencing myself and seeing it in other people, I just want to give you four easy things. Easy way. If you're experiencing this yourself and you're like, I want, I want to be, I want to grow in holiness and I want to get rid of some of these sinful passions in my life, what are the ways that I start? The Bible seems to suggest, and I can attest to this by my own experience, it starts by acknowledging first the false self with its passions. I'm going to call the worship team up here as we prepare to worship in song. It starts by acknowledging that there is a false self. And really, if I could just be honest, that there is something wrong with you. It's stopping this illusion that you've got it all together and that there's actually something wrong with you. And being broken over it. Second, it involves opening your heart with all of its filth with all of its garbage, with all of the hidden sins, opening that up to God and saying, Lord, 
go beyond the surface veneer of my spirituality, go into the stuff that I've been embarrassed about and stuff that I don't even know is there. Just show me what it is. Opening up your heart to God and to others. And third, it's abiding in his loving and sometimes challenging presence. And as you're doing that, acknowledging, okay, the false self with its passions, broken over it, but opening up your heart to God and to others and abiding in his loving presence as he begins to point out things that he wants to take out. You will only then be able to experience the ability to take small steps of self-control. That's where the change will happen. Fifth, repeat. You know what happened when I realized, wow, I'm an angry person back then. Not angry anymore. (laughs) God started pointing out more stuff. He's all, oh, yeah, you're not angry anymore. Like, we're we're working with that, but you have this love for validation. I want to work on that. Oh, no, I just like it. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, if I could end on anything, I would say right now that it's not, it's not, momentary experiences that change your character. Momentary experiences will change your affections. That's what happened when you got born again. That's when you hap- what happens when you go to a youth camp, a men's, uh, a men's uh, get-together. That's what happens when you go to a worship conference. Your affections are stimulated. That is not what is required to go deep. What is needed to change your character is not a momentary experience, but taking a thousand steps in the same direction while abiding in Christ. And that's part of our vision at this church. We want to be broken from our sense of independence by taking a thousand steps in the same direction together as we learn to abide in the presence of our God. And with every difficult step you take, you will begin to realize God is taking me on a journey on this stinking scooter to himself. If that's you, lay out your false self before God. As we worship, ask him, and maybe you don't even know the first steps, even though I gave you the first steps. Maybe you're like, even that's too daunting. You know what, just lay it out before the Lord and be like, God, I need help, have mercy. And he will meet you in time of need. Heavenly Father, ask now that as we begin to voice some of these things that you have promised in song, You would do what you so often do at our church. You you just drive it down from our mind into our hearts. And I pray that you would do that today. Whatever it is that you want to rearrange the furniture in our our lives, God, we, we want you to do that. But maybe we're a little scared. And I pray that you would calm our fears by overwhelming our hearts with love. You really are a good, good father. You care for your children. You never hurt us. Sometimes our sin hurts us, and sometimes it hurts when it gets removed. But I pray that we would be found with a compelling vision of what a life and transforming union with you could be like. And I pray that that would be far more compelling than the sin that entangles us. God, give us a love for holiness. Make us hate sin a little bit more. Not to be self-righteous people, not to be legalistic people, but to be people who have really tasted and seen that you are good and are so driven 
by our love for you. We want nothing more than for Santa Barbara to share in it. God, you've got to start with us. You know how we are. So break us down, put us back together this morning. In the name of your dear son, Jesus Christ.